0: You're listening to Led Church Podcast with Pastor Bill Carpenter.
1: Today we're going to talk about uh, the Reformed Reformation, okay? Uh, and so Christina Hitchcock is going to come at this time, and she is going to give you a historical perspective here, and then her husband is going to come behind that and preach uh, to us today. So excited to have them come back! Would you welcome Christina?
0: All right. Well, the Reformed tradition centers on the teachings of people like Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, Martin Bucer. I don't know if any of those names ring a bell for you. But it centered in places like Switzerland and Austria, but quickly moved throughout the continental continental Europe and then into the UK. Um, this is especially notable for America um, that the Reformed tradition was accepted in places like the Netherlands, Scotland, and England because um, immigrants from those places had a huge effect on American tradition and culture, theologically and otherwise. Now, it is my opinion that the reformed tradition is a mini splendored thing. Um, perhaps it's best-known theologian John Calvin. Um, he is best known for his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, which is kind of a sweeping look at the breadth and depth of theology. Um, So we can't talk about everything, obviously, but for today, uh, I just want to take a brief look at the relationship between the Reformed tradition and what is commonly called confessionalism. Um, At the time of the Reformation, the structure of the church had taken on an importance of its own, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, And we could talk about this for a long time, but the, the structure of the church, the magisterium, the structure of priests and bishops and cardinals and the pope... Um, had begun to seem to exist for its own sake, as opposed to for the sake of something else. And confessionalism, in many ways, is, uh, is pushing back against that. Um, so what is confessionalism? Well, a creed usually refers to early church statements which summarize the gospel. For example, the Apostles' Creed, which we both sang and said today, so that was very nice, um, and the Nicene Creed. A confession in the Reformed tradition usually refers to later documents that were built on the creeds and used to explain the faith. Um, Often catechisms are included in the broader term confessions, and a catechism is a question-answer way of studying theology. A question is asked, and then an answer is given. Um, So some examples of Reformed confessions uh, is the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession and Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort. I have a book here called Reform Confessions of the 16th Century. So there's a bunch of them. You can um, read them, and I'm sure you would benefit from it. Um, so while the Reform Confessions have a lot of different roles, uh, I just want to point out four emphases uh, that were brought out by the confessionalism of the Reformed Church. So first... Confessions emphasize the importance of Scripture. The Reformed tradition believes that the Bible is the first and most faithful witness to Jesus Christ. The Reformed tradition never means for the confessions to be on par with Scripture or to replace Scripture. I know occasionally you might talk to a Reformed person who gives a different impression they're wrong. Um, the, the, the creeds, and maybe I'm the only person who talks to reform people in here, I don't know. But, um, but, uh, but the, the, the confessions are rather meant to be subject to the authority of Scripture. So Scripture is the only infallible guide to faith and knowledge of God. Scripture is the only instrument which the Holy Spirit promises to take up and to use uh, to reveal Jesus Christ to us. Um, And so confessions are meant to serve scripture. And they do that in a couple of ways. Uh, They're meant to give us a greater understanding of scripture. So, for example, the Heidelberg uh, Catechism uses questions 23 through 58 to explain the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is a summary of the gospel. So the Heidelberg is trying to give us a clearer understanding of the gospel itself not to replace it in any way, shape, or form. Uh, they're also kind of meant to be, I hate to use the phrase cliff notes, because as a professor, I hate cliff notes, um, and no one should ever buy them. Um, but but the confessions are, are better than cliff notes. But they kind of summarize the gospel and give us a language to enter into the scriptures um, in a way that we can better understand them and make sense of them. So, first of all, confessions emphasize the importance of scripture. Second, confessions emphasize the importance of tradition. And by that, I mean church tradition. So, the Reformed tradition places great store on the history, teaching, and tradition of the Christian church. And again, um, it can seem otherwise because... This is one of the reform, part of the Reformation that broke away from the Catholic Church. So, one of the accusations often made against all the reformers is that they didn't appreciate tradition. Um, But I think, in this sense, the reformed tradition is actually very Catholic. Um, And we see this in the confessionalism of this tradition. The confessions and catechisms are fruits of the Holy Spirit who has been leading the church through the ages giving wisdom and guidance and knowledge to the church. And so the confessions are meant to draw upon that ancient wisdom of the church um, and allow the present church, whatever that is, to benefit from the past church. So confessions are meant to be places where the... The best work of the church and the guiding and leading of the Holy Spirit are kept safe for future generations. So again, questions 23 through 58 in the Heidelberg are an an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is the earliest creed we have, and so the Heidelberg is trying to take that early wisdom and theology of the church and make it uh, plain and sensible to the current church. And so confessions are understood to be gifts from the church for the church, Third, confessions emphasize the importance of orderly doctrine. The Reformed tradition believes that what we believe about God matters a great deal. The Reformed tradition maybe goes a little farther than some others in that it also believes that our ability to understand, articulate, and pass on what we believe about God matters a great deal. It doesn't just matter that the church hierarchy believes the right thing, it matters that Anyone in the church can understand that in an orderly way, can articulate it, and then can talk about it. And so doctrine, like so many other things, uh, needs to be orderly, and it needs to be clear. And we see this in the confessions, which are written both for the sake of clarity and pedagogy. So clarity, the confessions show the orderliness of God's character and God's work um, by their own orderly articulation of these things um secondly they're written for the sake of pedagogy the confessions and catechisms are meant to be teaching tools um for example when i was a kid i memorized big chunks of the westminster shorter catechism because that was um the way that you learn doctrine and you learn about who god is and i still know many of those questions well many might be too too strong a word i still know some of those questions and occasionally they come in handy Um, And so it's a teaching tool. It allows, and, and many of them, the shorter catechisms were usually meant to teach children. The longer catechisms often were used to teach adults. So the confessions emphasize the importance of orderly doctrine. And fourth, the confessions emphasize the importance of, surprisingly enough, confession. The confessions are called confessions for a reason. The Reformed tradition believes that at the center of being a Christian is the act of confession or the act of worship. And so confession is the act of recognizing God for who he is and ourselves for who we are in relation to him. And we see this in the confessions and catechisms of the Reformed church. So for example, the first question of the Westminster Catechism says, what is man's human being's chief end? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this sets the tone for the whole catechism, right? The reason we're doing this is so we can glorify God and enjoy him. Worship, confession. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which I actually like more than the Westminster, says, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer is, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that a lovely thing to teach your children in their first Sunday school lesson? What is your only comfort in life and death? That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, And that that draws us to worship. That confession leads to worship. And so the confessions are given such a name, confessions, in order to recognize that God has given us the good gifts of Scripture, church tradition, and orderly doctrine so that we might know and love him. They are not there for their own sake. Scripture is not there for its own sake. Church tradition is not there for its own sake. Orderly doctrine is not there for its own sake, but always so that we might have the privilege to confess that Jesus is Lord.
1: Thank you, Christina. Let's hear the text this morning. It's taken from Titus chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 and uh, through verse 9. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The word of the Lord.
2: Well, friends, it is always an honor to be with you, to preach to you, to open the word of God with you. And today we're gonna take a look, not at the reformed reformation, but really at what it means today, uh, reforming our order. How many of you talk to cars? I mean, that is, you talk at cars. You yell, am I the only weird one here? Do you do this? Do you yell at cars and drivers and things like that? Yeah, it's a bit of a problem for me, I admit. Uh, because I'm sensitive to order on the road. So just the other day, I was driving down uh, 10th Street by our house, and they're doing construction, and all of a sudden, there is a car driving straight at me in my lane. And I'm all, so anyway, we fix it. It's fine. Nobody dies. But I think, ah, that person. Then I'm like, no, not that person. That construction crew, somebody messed this up. Somebody didn't have the proper signage. Somebody didn't have the proper cones. And I start talking. But it goes the other way occasionally, too. Occasionally, I see really good order on the road, uh, people cooperating or some good system, and it, it brings joy to my heart. So for example, I'm dropping Z off at school, and by the way, don't we have some remarkable schools here in Sioux Falls? It's, 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 it's pretty amazing. Uh, and I'm dropping Z off at school, and he has a fantastic school, and, and there's this drop-off area that's really well planned out. Everything is just in order. And, and I drop him off, and there's proper parking and spaces, and then there's a crosswalk in just the right space. And he goes across the crosswalk, and there's a crosswalk guard who comes out, you know, and helps him across. And she's like, hi, Z, and, you know. And, and, and it brought a little tear to my eye. I'm like, it's all in the right place. <laughs> now, granted, I'm a little geeky this way, but it's more than that. It's that there was order that facilitated somebody loving my son and my son being safe, that he's loved bec- it, it, through this order, which got me thinking about this sermon and, and thinking about uh, a trellis. This, this image kept on coming to mind. Thank you, Jeannie, for finding one. Uh, a trellis, you know, what does a trellis do? It, it helps facilitate the growth of a vine, If you have a vine, a vine can grow wild and grow all sorts of places, but it might get choked out or not do very well. But if you have a trellis, then it has something to grow up, and then it gets lots of sunlight, and it grows in a very orderly fashion and thrives. And in the same way, God, I believe, wants to give us order so that we can flourish. That if we have the proper order in our lives, it's going to lead to human flourishing, That's why we're concerned about this. Not just because 500 years ago some reformers began attending to this, but because it's truly biblical and it's truly life giving. But I want to start out with a premise. Before we talk about how God wants order in our lives or how God wants order at Life Church, let's talk about God. That is the point of preaching, first and foremost. And to talk about this, turn to the book of Titus. I'd invite you to follow along. Titus is there towards the end of the Bible, after First and 2 Timothy, before Philemon and Hebrews. It's little, just three chapters. Just note a couple things with me. The book of Titus is written by whom? Paul, the Apostle Paul. It says there in verse 1 of chapter 1. And it's written to whom? Written to Titus, okay, it's not a trick question, All right? And we know this through verse four. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. This book, this epistle to Titus, is written to establish order in the churches, and we can tell that uh, through verse five. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. So order there in Crete. And Crete is that island in the Mediterranean. So so that's a little bit of context here. So in the first century, Paul writes to Titus. So Paul is an apostle. He's been commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to be this kind of uh, seminal speaker of the gospel. And then Titus is, uh, what do you call him, a church planter, a missionary, somebody who's there on site to help bring order. And Paul is going to help Titus think about how to arrange the church there at Crete. But before he does so, he starts talking about God. Look at those first few verses with me. We oftentimes skip over those first few verses, but they're important. Again, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Before the ages began. Who is this God? He, he's a God who, who offers a promise, a promise of eternal life. And, and when he offers this promise, he never lies. Paul is going to say, God is not a liar. This God is good, he's truthful, and he's a God who cares about life, eternal life, all these things. But, but when did God start caring about these things? Who, who is this God we're speaking about? It's a God who cared about these things from the very, very beginning, from before the ages, before they even began. Here's, here's a wild thing. If you want a mind-bending concept, think about this. Before God created, God made a plan of salvation. In some significant sense, before creation, you have salvation. Redemption precedes creation. That's kind of wild. That this God had a plan. And how do we get our brains around this? Well, Paul keeps on talking about it's not just here in Titus. That this plan before the ages, sometimes Paul calls just that. It is God's plan. Other translations uh, say God's administration or more literally his economy. You find that in places uh, like Ephesians 3 and 1 Timothy 1. Occasionally, Paul will call this plan predestination or election. And these words make people shudder sometimes. What what is God doing? God is choosing people. God is actually selecting individuals. God God is so sovereign that he's actually just pulling people out and saying, I'm going to save you, and passing over the others and letting them have what they want, which is damnation. How how does this work? We get really worked up about this. I don't want to focus on that today, but simply to say that in the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had a game plan. And at the heart of that plan, The plan was to send Jesus into the world to bring you into relationship with God. His plan was to rescue you and to bring you to himself. And everything else in history, all of the creation and all the the, the turbulence in history, all of it actually centers around that choice right there. And everything that God does in the future from that point on Is oriented around that plan to save you in Jesus. What we see here is that our God, the true God, is a God of order. He's in control of all things. In fact, it's a little shocking what the Bible tells us. What the Bible tells us is that nothing in your life is an accident. Do you believe that? do this for me. Turn to to the person next to you and say, nothing in your life is an accident. (laughs) Do you believe that? Okay? Your brother or sister is telling you this. God is telling you this. It's pretty hard to believe, isn't it? Because you rarely see it in the moment. Because in the moment, things happen. Somebody cuts you off and you're like, oh, that could not have been on purpose. (laughs) I mean, God... That person may have intended it for evil, but God didn't. I mean, is God in that? Yes. God is in control of all these things. Nothing in your life is an accident. You may never see it in the moment. You'll never see the full sense of everything until Jesus comes back. But God really is orchestrating it all, using the hard things, even the dissonant things in life to make a symphony for you. God is doing all things to work toward your salvation. And if you don't believe me, then believe Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together. Because God is a God of order. And his order is love. Understanding that God is a God of order, let's see how the gospel leads us, leads this church even, to express order. We want to be like God, amen? Amen. We want to follow his lead. So if God is a God of order, then what does our church need to be? It also needs to be ordered. And Paul begins laying this out. In light of God's purposes, in light of God himself, there's going to be order in the church. And there are three different expressions, I think, that we can get from the text here. And I want to follow the text as closely as possible by looking at three types of order. A orderly belief, B orderly behavior, and C orderly governance. And I'm still so reformed. This is terrible. I always have three points. Like, it's like a rule. Like, if you become a Calvinist, you have to have three points for everything, right? You know, I proposed to Christina in three steps. I, 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 I don't. The church is to be ordered. First of all, orderly belief. Christina did a fine job expressing this, but let me follow up on it. Paul is an apostle, this is verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So Paul then is preaching the gospel for the faith of God's elect and the, their knowledge of the truth. I think it makes most sense to run those two things together. Faith and knowledge are joined. In this case, we see that again in Ephesians 4:13. Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus so that people may believe God or alternatively that they may know the truth of God. And it's 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 a it's a faith that is objective. It's not a kind of believe whatever you want to believe. You hear this today, people say, oh, you're a person of faith, as if any kind of faith is just good enough faith. But we're not talking about that, we're talking about the faith, believing in this Jesus. Every Christian is to believe this, to assent to this, that is to trust the same Lord. In fact, in verse 4, you see this, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, a shared faith. Paul is writing to Titus to make sure that everybody is believing the same thing. Not micromanaging all the beliefs, but making sure there are some central beliefs that are the same. And Paul calls this sound doctrine. Repeatedly in the book of Titus, Paul tells the young pastor to make sure he and others are teaching this sound doctrine, for example, in verse 9. He, an elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's especially important for elders. But it's not just talking to the elders. Uh, Paul talks to all of us. In fact, if you go on, you find sound doctrine occurring for the rest of the church, too. We're supposed to believe those core things and to have that theology right, this belief about God right at its core. People are supposed to believe the Bible, but but it's not just, you realize that calling yourself a biblical Christian is a good thing, but, but it's not just about reading the Bible or believing some biblical things. In fact, Paul is not talking about that here. The Bible as such wasn't gathered and formalized until the 300s. There were scriptures, but really what Paul is talking about here is that we are supposed to have a common faith. The core beliefs are to be the same, with the scriptures, of course, always informing that. We're supposed to know the same things, believe the same things about the gospel, God the Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit and the church, salvation and the end time. And I know from experience that this matters. It's not just because, I mean, there's a reason why I'm a teacher, uh, because I think this stuff really matters. Chaos can ensue if you don't have some core beliefs that everybody subscribes to. I remember when I went to college, I was 18 years old passionate for Jesus. And I met some other people, freshmen, they're 18 years old, and they were passionate for Jesus too, and they were all, they were they were super hormonal. I mean, holy. And and we got together and we said, "Hey, let's 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 start a prayer club." And so we did this. And we started praying together and and we got really excited and worked up, and we thought God was calling us to share this. So we began sharing this, and we we came up with a name, Revival Fellowship. We're going to help revive this school. And it, and it seemed to be working, you know, uh, sins were being exposed in our lives, and, and we were learning about God and studying the Bible, and then more people joined us, and then we had a couple of events that drew hundreds of people. We're like, whoa, it's a revival, it's happening, it was amazing, and it was amazing. But we never really found our center in terms of what we believed, or what our mission was. And, and then what happened was this, our vice president dumped our president. They were dating, <laughs> so our vice president, uh, a, a woman, uh, dumped the president, and then all hell broke loose, uh, as you might expect. But even before that, they, they, we, we hadn't really settled on the, the, thing, the things that really mattered. And so when, when, there, when some initial power struggles came up, people would say this, like the president would say to me, he's like, well, I hear you saying that, but, but do you have spiritual discernment? Uh, I don't know, do I? Well, tell me, I mean, did, did, does that come from an apostolic authority? Uh, what's apostolic authority? Like, I had never heard that term before, you know? And you start throwing things around, they're like, well, that's a word of wisdom, but is it a word of knowledge, too? I don't know, you know, like, all these, all these terms are being thrown around, and they're very weighty, but do they really matter, those, those terms? Did we really have a center? And then, of course, things blew up, and the whole revival fellowship uh, collapsed. God used it for a time, though, I think. But this is why orderly belief really matters, so that you can have a sustained ministry for the sake of Jesus. And if you don't have that, things will get off target. You'll have heresies spring up. You'll have weird divisions crop up. But if you center around the right things again and again, it leads to unity. And this is what Christina was talking about people like Heinrich Bullinger and Martin Bucer and John Calvin and others are all calling people to a common faith a common statement you can rally around these confessions the Westminster Confession or the First Helvetic Confession or the Belgic Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism and guess what while we don't hold to all those confessions here and we don't quote them very often here at Life Church we do have some statements of belief don't we okay we we Uh, do things like subscribe to the Apostles' Creed, and we read this out loud to remember what we believe. We have a statement of faith. You can see that online. But it goes beyond that. We have a mission statement. And on top of the mission statement, we have a vision statement, which kind of gives the broad sweep, our vision for the next five years here at Life Church, And those statements help to unite us. And this is important because it may come, uh, there, there may come a time where somebody says, so, what's so special about Life Church? And you can say, Oh, oh let, let me tell you what Life Church is about. Oh, we, we just, well, we have this cool thing called the table on Wednesdays, and Sundays are great. We worship, and we hear, we hear uh, messages, and Pastor Bill is so great, and Pastor Dave is so great, all these people are so great, and you should come here. And, and you, might, you might have all this stuff, and you might say, Oh, yeah, we, we love Jesus, and we want to worship him. Or you can say this We glorify Jesus Christ. By making disciples in our neighborhood and beyond. That's our mission statement. That's what Life Church is about. We're making disciples for the sake of Jesus Christ, for His glory. So, these statements, then, this orderly belief can be shorthand, and that shorthand helps to unify us. So, orderly belief. But not just orderly belief in the churches, Paul wants orderly behavior. Again, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. This faith that we have, this doctrine that we maintain, we're supposed to join to it godly lives. Later in that passage, verses 6 through 9, you see that Titus is commanded to seek out godly leaders people whose lives conform to the faith they profess. They're supposed to be above reproach. They're supposed to be a uh, a husband of one wife. That is a one-woman man, quite literally. Their house is supposed to be in order, and so on and so forth. That these things matter. that, That our elders' lives should exhibit the discipline, the patterns, the worshipful lifestyle that Pastor Dave talked about last week. In fact, the whole book of Titus is packed with moral instruction for the church at Crete. Now, Paul seems to think that the Cretans can be reformed, that their behavior can be brought in check, which is kind of a little overly optimistic sometimes, I feel, like you realize who we're talking about here. We're talking about the Gentiles, these non-Jews who are untrained in, in the gospel, untrained in the scriptures, untrained in God's ways, and and the Cretans. The Cretans had a reputation in the first century. Uh, you know, there is this Mediterranean culture, and I don't know if you know any Mediterranean people, but even today, like I'm not I'm not trying to be mean here. Even today, Mediterranean people, many of the cultures, are just flamboyant. You know, they they uh, they express affection loudly, they disagree with each other passionately, they will get into all sorts of fights with each other, they, they can be uh, uh, wonderful folks, but oftentimes very undisciplined, uh, has, has been my experience. Nevertheless, Paul says, all these wonderful things can be brought together. And, and he, boy, talk, look at verse 12. This is one of the meanest verses in all of scripture. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. (laughs) Ouch. I mean, talk about cultural insensitivity. But Paul is not trying to insult the Cretans. He actually is confident that they can be changed. He's confident that these people, these wonderful men and women, can be brought into line and made an even better version of themselves. That's good news for us. God has a confidence in our sanctification. Now, when we talk about being sanctified, when we talk about being saved, we need to start where Pastor Bill started a couple weeks ago. We are justified by faith. God declares us right by faith. We belong to God by faith, period. But God doesn't just tell us that we're his children. He also says, and now I'm going to help you be more like me. I believe that you can be, become godly, and I'm going to help you become godly. It would be kind of mean of God just to say, yeah, you're my child, but you know what? You're never going anywhere. No! God believes that you can be changed. He thinks you're worth investing in. The gospel, then, is not just about justification. It is also about sanctification. If justification is being declared righteous... Sanctification is about actually being conformed to the image of Christ. And God has given us ways of moving towards this godliness. The gospel has the power to set us on the path of personal purity. The Holy Spirit is given to us so as to change us from the inside out. He will bring order to our lives. And maybe today you're here in a spirit of pessimism. And you're saying things to yourself like this. I just can't get over my bitterness. I could never stop gambling. I can't help my greedy lifestyle. I'll never change. Do you hear that voice? And God says to you, yes, you can. Yes, you can change. I will help you. By the power of God, you will change. That is how the gospel accords with godliness. It's not just about saving us and getting us into the fold. It's about saving us, making us look like Jesus. And guess what, friends? Jesus is not done with you. God gives us these gifts of the gospel. He gives us his word. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And he also gives us each other. Praise Jesus for you guys because I need you. I need this community. Our family needs this community. And you need each other. And in Life Church, we have these expressions. We have pastoral authority. And we have accountability in our various groups. And we have discipline. Discipline. That's it. I said the D word. (laughs) Discipline. Nobody likes discipline because we think of punishment. We think of being, you know. But. Have you ever noticed that the word discipline is very closely related to another word? Discipline comes from disciple. And I want you to get this in your brains right now. In fact, to get it in your hearts. To be a disciple means to be disciplined. And those who are disciplined are disciples. You can't separate the two. They go hand in hand. In fact, uh, among the Reformed confessions, you have the Belgic Confession, and it asks the question, what are, what are the marks of the true church? Uh, and and the, uh, the correct answer, according to the Belgic Confession, is that, well, there are three marks. You need the pure preaching of the gospel, you need the right administration of the sacraments, and you need the use of discipline. If you want to know what the true church looks like, look for the use of discipline. To put it kind of harshly, the Belgic Confession is saying that if you go to a church and you can't find anybody being held accountable, is it really a church? Church is discipline because churches care about making disciples. You know? And, and, and so the next time that you need discipline, that you need to be shaped, and discipline can be encouragement too, by the way. But the next time somebody gets in your business here at Life Church, just say, Thank you, Jesus, because this person is helping me become a better disciple. Martin Bucer says that discipline exists so that God's people are deprived of nothing which contributes to their continual growth and increase in godliness. Amen to that. All right, so what are our points so far? God cares about our order. He wants to order our beliefs, but also to order our behaviors, right? And then he also wants this third point, He wants to order our governance. Ordering governance. When Paul writes to Titus, the first thing he goes after is putting things in order in the form of elders. This is verse 5. That's why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Elders then become this sort of uh, primary way of ordering a church. In verse 7, it says, for an overseer, and some people in Christian history have said, okay, so there are elders, and then there are overseers. An overseer must be like a super elder, or a super pastor, or a bishop even. But that doesn't sound right to me. Just looking at the grammar of this text, you can see it in the English here. For an overseer. Uh, Paul is continuing an idea or he's building an idea on the idea before. That is to say, an overseer is the same thing as an elder. Elders are overseers and overseers are elders. So we don't have bishops then. We don't need bishops. We don't need archbishops or a pope. We don't need this steep hierarchy. Rather, we need to have a number of people who are here governing, governing together. But notice... Here's what's most important for us. Appoint elders. Plural. Do not just appoint a pastor. Don't just appoint one elder. Rather, appoint elders. This really matters this plurality, this, this uh, number of elders. Because Titus is not supposed to be a monarch. Paul himself is not to act as Pope. A church is never supposed to have one leader. Uh, or you might say, yes, a church is supposed to have one leader Jesus. That's it. You know, you want to talk about who is our head? It's Jesus. Um, but if that's the case, then who are our leaders? Well, they need to be multiple people. Governance should be shared, is another way. Saying it. Why is it so important to have multiple leaders? Well, you might say two things positively and negatively. Positively, you want to have multiple leaders because the Holy Spirit has filled lots of different folks. In fact, the Holy Spirit has filled all believers, so you all have a role in the church. But the Holy Spirit has equipped a number of people, not just one person, to minister to the body in in a leadership capacity. This is very, we are so blessed at Life Church, aren't we? It's ridiculous how blessed we are, how many uh, people the Holy Spirit has equipped for leadership. So, positively, we do this because we see in passages like Numbers 11 and 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit falls on lots of people to lead. Negatively, we need lots of leaders because, how to say this? because Christian leaders sin occasionally. (laughs) I know, dirty little secret. It's true, Christian leaders still sin. So we need multiple leaders and multiple types of leaders to, to provide checks and balances, to be able to keep each other honest. John Calvin says this in his Institutes. Because humans are weak and sinful, it is safer for a number to exercise government So that they may help one another. And if someone asserts himself unfairly, there may be a number of examiners and masters to restrain his willfulness. We need multiple leaders. And when you go back to the 1500s with this reformed reformation, all these churches throughout Europe and England and Scotland... What they were saying is that there need to be different types of leaders in the same church. So the medieval church then had this kind of line of deacon, priest, uh, bishop, archbishop, pope, and a very steep hierarchy. And the Reformed Reformation said, let's squash that hierarchy, but make sure there are lots of people in charge. People like Martin Bucer and John Calvin taught that there need to be four classes of leaders, and they identified Pastors, elders, deacons, and teachers, those were their four categories, Uh, four different roles that could be played, and that's how churches should be run. And there should be multiple pastors, elders, deacons, and teachers, ideally. That's what well-ordered government looks like. And some of you go, oh, that kind of sounds familiar, even outside of the church, because in our U.S. government, what do we have? How many branches do we have? And does any one branch get to rule the others? No. Well, they can try, don't they, huh? (laughs) Right, but the checks and balances. Well, guess where that idea came from? It came from Presbyterianism, which in turn came from the Reformed Reformation. Okay, checks and balances are really important. But but it's more than just, you know, creating checks and balances. It's about creating unity, in the end, it's saying, God has blessed us with his grace, blessed so many people with the power to lead, and let's honor each other and bring things together. And that's, in fact, what the Reformed Reformation is, is so admirable for. If Life Church can learn anything from it, it's that all this order is for the sake of bringing people together. In fact, the Reformed Reformation, more than any other Reformation that was going on in the 1500s, believed in the Catholic Church. That is, they believed the church could be united and unified and made uniform in all the healthy ways they believed in a catholic church a small c small c catholic which means unified or uniform it really is possible to pull churches together and you can do this by having lots of leaders who respect each other that's a key part of it and here at life church it's not that life church does it does everything perfectly but what do we have we have pastors we have elders. We have a lot of other people who are filling leadership roles. And we're trying to get better at this all the time. The church has bylaws, which helps to keep things ordered. And we have accountability to other Christian groups that we're working on right now. We're trying to find ways to not just make Life Church totally hermetically sealed and autonomous. We want to keep accountable to other people, other leaders, other churches. For the sake of unity and for the sake of flourishing. Let me conclude by this. I believe God wants to bless Life Church. I think, I think God is ready to pour out all sorts of blessings on Life Church. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that we're gonna, we're gonna bust out of this building or out, out of out of this out of these walls. If we set up proper order, there's no doubt. That God is going to just give us so many people. God cares about people hearing the gospel, and the gospel's going out at Life Church, so I think He's going to bring more people to us. But I think God is also asking us to prepare for that, to be ordered. And ordered not for the sake of being straight laced or boring or just having pinochle nights here. No, God wants us to be ordered for the sake of joy. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Well, one of the major fruits of the Spirit is joy. If you want to know whether your life is well-ordered, ask yourself this, am I experiencing joy right now? And if you're in a place right now where you're disordered or you are under the burden of addiction, even addiction to your own little micromanaging order, and you don't have joy, You're not well ordered yet. God wants to give you the grace of further order. God wants you to be like this trellis. He wants to put a trellis in your life where you can flourish, where you can have this joy. That's where I think God wants you to be. I think God is leading you there. And I think God is leading this church there. Praise Him for that. Pastor.
1: Thank you, Nathan. Would our prayer team, would you please just come on up with me and stand with me up here at the front this morning as we are getting ready to close this service? I believe this is a really timely word for life church today. And hopefully, you and I are sitting here with a good sense that God is a God of order and that order allows us to flourish. It allows us to, to, to grow. You know, in the book of Genesis, it begins with chaos. There is no order, there's darkness and it's brooding. But it says that the Spirit of God comes and speaks order, sets the seasons into place, sets the days and the hours into place, creates the animals. The fauna flourishes, the earth does. God was at work before the ages. Nathan referred to that from the passage that the promises of God were from the ages before they existed. And you see, God desires to bring order in your life, in our lives, in the life of the church. But here's the problem. We live in a broken world because of sin. And sin breeds chaos. Out of sin comes brokenness. But you see, God, even before those foundations of the world began, had a plan. A plan that would speak into this chaos, this brooding darkness, this disorder this inability to flourish. And so at the proper time, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came, Jesus lived, and Jesus taught, and Jesus died. But out of God's plan and God's order, on the third day, He arose from the dead. He was resurrected out of death and out of darkness and out of chaos and out of bondage for you and I. He came for you. He came to give order to your disorder. He came to bring life into your chaos and into my chaos. He did that because God loved us. Because God loved us that much. And you know what? He ascended to the right hand of the Father in that resurrection. And He is there in intercession today, right now for you and I. He is praying for our disorder and our chaos. And I want to say to you this morning as your pastor, if there's any aspect of your life that is out of order, if there's any place where you are being ruled by chaos in your life today, Jesus is your answer. Jesus has come for you. And even if you've gotten comfortable in your chaos and in your disorder, if you are actually living in your dis-ease and have been for a season of your life, and it's become bondage, it's become habitual, God is able to come into that disorder and to break that yoke of that for you today. And all you have to do is come to Him. And for some of you, that will look like actually getting out of your chair and walking up here and standing in front of one of these precious people who love you deeply and confessing and receiving prayer. For some of you, it just simply means sitting in your chair and quietly waiting on God's spirit to speak order to you and bring revelation to you. For some of you, it might mean moving and adjusting yourself to another seat by someone and just whispering a confession to that person and talking for a moment with them and praying together and asking God to bring this order into your life. And that may look like friend to friend, brother to brother, sister to sister, husband to wife, wife to husband, child to parent, parent to child. But the reality is that God has called us to be a people of order, and that order begins with a personal order, and that is with Jesus Christ, and you start there, and as he forgives you of your sins, order is established, and then that allows you and I to flourish, and then greater order comes as we come into fellowship with one another, not just with Christ alone. And as we flourish together, we grow together and we disciple together and we make disciples together. But my friend, for you, it begins with you. Where are you today? And would you let God, by His Son Jesus Christ, speak order into your life by loving you, by being reconciled to Him, you experience that love today. And that is the beginning of order. With Christ alone. I want to pray for you. If you will, those of you who need to, just boldly stand up and come. That's the invitation today is to come. Come and see that God is good. Come and taste and know that God is good. So please come. If you need to just sit quietly, do so. And after we pray, if you're prepared to, you can be dismissed and go out and and fill out your sheets and, and, and be on your way. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you so much. You've done so much to not only love us, but to to give us the ability to receive order into our lives. And you've created and established order around us that we may flourish. Open our hearts to this message today, Lord. And the call to be reconciled. God, by your Spirit, speak to us today of your great love, your great intent. And that even though our lives may be filled with all kinds of chaos and and, and all kinds of brooding darkness and all kinds of habitual sins, you are a God of order. And you will speak that order through your love that you have given through your Son, Jesus Christ. Do it, Father. Do it for us today in Life Church. Establish us as your people today that we may live out of this place of your good intent, your good purpose, your good order for all of us. And may then our lives bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.